The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. David Yoakum here. Earlier this summer, our team had the opportunity to join the Association for Psychological Sciences annual conference in San Francisco. While we were there, we got to talk to a few psychologists about the application of their research. So we asked them things like, how does memory work? How do you assemble a high-functioning team of astronauts for a multi-year mission to Mars? Are we worse at texting and driving than we think? Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing three episodes in our mini-series, Psych in the City. And today, we kick off the discussion on memory with Lynn Dell, professor of psychology and cognitive science at the University of Arizona. Lynn Adele, welcome to the podcast at DC. Happy to be here. So we're talking about memory, so we should start by reminiscing a little bit. Take me back to the 60s. Why did you start studying memory? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough question, it's tougher than it should sound. I was a graduate student in uh, psychology, uh, doing my PhD in the, in the mid-60s. I was, a, I was a student at McGill University in Montreal, uh, which was kind of the epicenter for studies of memory at that time. A uh, very famous patient, H.M., whose who's, uh, brain surgery led to a devastating am- amnesic syndrome and, and who has, was then studied for another 50 years and, and, and the study of whom led to in- incredible insights about memory. That happened in Montreal so that, so that as a student there, you were constantly being confronted with memory as kind of the most important thing to study. And, and, of course, the, the famous psychologist uh, Donald Hebb was at, at McGill as well, and he was, had just promulgated theories about how the brain forms new memories. And so memory was very much the topic of interest for most of the students. So I just got sort of sucked into the, 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 uh, the whirlpool, so to speak, of, of being excited about memory and how, how might it actually be stored in the brain. What was unique about the, the atmosphere there was, that was this focus on putting together uh, ideas about memory from a sort of a psychological perspective, just everyday experiences of memory with the kind of emerging knowledge about the way the brain did things. So, so Hebb uh, and this patient kind of led the way in, in developing ideas about how memories actually get formed in the brain and what, what might that mean and, and for, a vi- for a variety of other things. So I just went along with the tide, you might say. Uh, memory was what we all were excited about, trying to figure it out. So that's how I got my start. So to get on the road to talking about the role of memory in everyday interactions of public policy, I think it'll be useful to do kind of a crash course memory 101, which I Fair enough. appreciate is going to be a difficult challenge. But I'm wondering if we might start by kind of giving a, a first pass overview on how memory works, and then maybe we'll have a second pass to pull out some of the nuances about how Fair accuracy enough. and things are. I think, the, I mean, in order to set the stage, the, the, the thing that's important to make clear right at the outset is that there isn't just one kind of memory. Uh, 
So when we use the word memory uh, in everyday life, when an average person on the street, you ask them, you know, what do you think memory means? They would say something like, well, I mean, you know, what I did yesterday or, or a vacation I took last month. They, they, they're talking about a particular kind of memory, what we in the trade call episodic memory. Actually, there are a variety of other kinds of memory. Say, for example, the memory that you form when you learn how to ride a bicycle. Now, you wouldn't, most of us don't call those memories, but they are. I mean, you're learning how to, do it, how to do something. You acquire knowledge. You get better at it. That's a form of memory. So over the last 30 or 40 years, it's become clear that there are multiple memory systems and that these memory systems differ in a variety of interesting ways. What we as individual people and what the lay public is most interested in are kind of ep- these sort of episodic memories, the things you know from our own autobiographical experience. But actually, when we think about things like addiction or things like uh, uh, maladaptive behavior, they also reflect memory, but not necessarily episodic memory, but habit memory, the kind of things that, you, that are hard to get rid of. And a lot of the issues that we struggle with in the, in the public domain have to do with these other forms of memory. Now, given that as a background, the idea about memory, the simple notion is that things happen out there in the world and we experience them. And we form traces of those experiences in our brain. And the reason we do that is so that we'll benefit in the future from having learned something about the world. You know, you say you visit a new city, you move, you walk around in that city, and you acquire some knowledge about, you know, what's where. So you kind of create an internal map of that place, and so on and so on. You learn new facts about the world, you, you acquire new information about the world. All of that you put to good use in an adaptive way later. So memory is an adaptive function. That we acquire knowledge, the brain stores that knowledge in, in ways that we're still figuring out, and then you use it in the future. That's the point of it. We also use it to tell stories about the past, but we're, what we're discovering now ever more forcefully is that the most important function of memory is to affect adaptive behavior in the future, to, to use your prior experience to behave more appropriately in the future, I mean, which we all need to do as individuals and, one might say, as societies. And, that, and the purpose of memory is something I'm going to come back to, but maybe to go through our one-on-one just a little bit slowly, let's take episodic memory. And okay. I think you just alluded to sort of acquiring through the experience, storing it, and then right. using it later, retrieving it. Do you think about those three stages differently? And what do we know about those three stages? Maybe let's start with the first one of how we sort of initially pull in an experience, start to pull it in for storage. Well, I mean... Our- our brain is automatically reacting to everything that happens around us from all of the senses and vision, audition, smell, touch, taste, uh, even our kinesthetic sense. All of these things are flooding the brain with information about what's going on right now. And the brain is making a kind of a, you, may, you might say, an immediate record of those things, uh, of everything that happens. It's a little hard to understand that because if, if it did that and nothing else happened, presumably your brain would explode after a week. There would be too much information. So... The brain is kind of registering everything that's happening in an online kind of way. And then over the course of that day or perhaps that night during sleep, we now know that's really important, some portion of the things that you were exposed to that your brain initially registered actually get preserved and kept as sort of long-term memories. But it's it's a fraction of what you experienced. So that's the encoding stage. So the first stage of just registering everything is one stage. Then comes this kind of later stage of afterwards of the brain not you're not doing this consciously your brain is doing this sort of offline you might say is working back through the events of the day 
comparing them to things that you that happened to you last week and so on, and absorbing some of this new information in ways to create new memories. Then over the course of time, that information is integrated into your prior knowledge base, so to speak, added to. So let me give, go back to the example of walk around a city. I've been in San Francisco you know, dozens of times I've lived in Berkeley for a year. I have a pretty good, I- good idea of the city. But now when I come back, there are some new buildings that have been built. And there are some new restaurants that have opened that I want to try. And there are some new neighborhoods that I haven't been to. While I have a good idea of what San Francisco is like, and I have a pretty good map of San Francisco, I can add this information into that, into that pre-existing map, so to speak, and expand my knowledge of San Francisco. So memory is also a way of adding to prior, to prior knowledge. And in fact, Recent research has demonstrated quite clearly that we acquire knowledge more effectively if we have already got some knowledge that we can attach it to. The stages are not quite so sharp and defined as one might think. When you say we're registering everything, should I be thinking about features of the environment that I'm kind of consciously thinking about? Or are you suggesting that we're actually capturing a lot more information than we are consciously aware at the moment that potentially retrieve later? Absolutely. The latter is absolutely true. Uh, we know that it, virtually everything is being registered, much of it at the unconscious level. And we know that because you can demonstrate in, in a variety of experiments, you know, that people actually did have access to stuff that they were not conscious of, at least temporarily. What's an example? Well, you can present a visual image so rapidly that it doesn't register consciously. But the information in that image nonetheless got into the brain. You can show that later by, say, showing them the same image. And they will react to it as if they had seen it before. Even though they don't remember having seen it, their reaction will indicate that they had somehow experienced it. Maybe when they see it, their patterns of their eye movements in tracking the, the scene will be different because they've already seen it. They will immediately alight on what was interesting about it, whereas if they'd never seen it before, they wouldn't know what was interesting about that scene. So you can show in these kinds of experiments that stuff that doesn't register consciously nevertheless gets in. Now, what happens to that stuff, what happens to those experiences that didn't register consciously is a function of whether they connect up with other things you knew, whether whether you're called upon to retrieve it consciously down the road, and so on, and it may just evaporate, you know, fairly quickly. But we do know that a lot of stuff is affecting your brain that you are not conscious of. So what determines if it gets encoded or not? And I guess you've already suggested one is whether it meshes with other things you know. That's one. The, a second thing that, it, that determines the likelihood of something being encoded is, is its salience. How important is it? How important is it to you? How important might it be in the future to you? How important is it to the, to the people you, you hold dear and so on? So salience is a critical factor. At the time when something happens, the brain, again, possibly without you knowing it, is, we think, putting little tags on aspects of your experience as if to say, this, this is important. When, you know, come, come tonight when you're asleep and your brain is working over stuff, make sure it keeps this one. This is important. So salience is really critical. It seems to influence the extent to which particular things get kept and other things get dropped. Uh, of course, what's salient to one person is not necessarily to another person. I mean, some things are salient to everybody, but some things are only salient and important to us because of our personal history, what our motivations are, what our interests are. And so, even within a single person, what's important it, it could vary, vary from time. time to time. Exactly. And is it right. mostly what's important in the moment that you're kind of consciously thinking about, or 
in some deeper sense. Well, if you're the sort of person who lives in the moment and doesn't plan for the future and, and, and so on, yes. But obviously, it's, I mean, salience, if I go to this meeting now and, and, and uh, as a student, what is going to be salient to me is not just the talks that I'm, you know, that focus on the things I'm working on right now, but also other things that might be important to me a year from now. You know, well, I'm going to take a course on such and such. Maybe I can learn about that. So I think as humans, we, we plan for the future, for, for long, for futures that are quite far down the road. So that what, you know, something that is salient now, I mean, it's salient. I just got off the, the phone with my, my son as, and we were, discussing, um, we were discussing a trip that we're planning in November. And the things he was saying now are only salient come November, but I'm certainly going to remember them because that's something that I'm playing. So we do long-term planning, and salience is a, is a function not only of our immediate needs, but also our long-term needs. There are very famous experiments that show that you know, the people's ability to kind of get outside the immediate moment and sort of focus a little bit on the future to delay their gratification or delay the importance of something. I mean, that's what defines more cognitively effective individuals. So, so it's, it's not just salient now. So we witness something. Let's say we encode it. It's a car crash that happens on the intersection. What happens with that memory? And maybe let's take a first case of if, let's say nothing happens with it. We don't yeah. use it. We don't mesh anything. Does it yeah. stay well, there forever? Does it decay? What starts oh, those are all really good questions. I mean, the first thing that we have to, be, we have to say about the example you gave is that when we witness something that is, say, stressful or emotionally arousing or traumatic even, it's not that the brain just registers that, you know, in a neutral kind of way. The very nature of those stimuli elicit stress responses, elicit a variety of kind of bio, biological reactions that influence the very workings of the machine itself, of the brain itself, so that the memory that we form when we've been exposed to a stressful or traumatic situation is not the same as the memory that we would form in a neutral situation. I don't, and I don't mean just the content of the memory, but even the nature and the structure of it. Stress directly affects the parts of the brain that are responsible for forming memories. And under enough stress, they don't work very well. So that the kind of memory that we form, for example, when we see a car crash, is not all that uh, veridical. It's not that truthful because we're right off the bat, we're working with a somewhat um, unusual instrument, you might say. The brain itself has been, has been changed. Its function has been changed by the stress and trauma, and the kind of memory it's going to form is going to be somewhat different than the kind of memory you'd get otherwise. So that's step number one. And, and actually, before you go to step number two, that's, if I'm hearing you right, saying that that's potentially less accurate, that seems to cut up against you know, everyday language about flashbulb memories, for instance, in the sense that if something is particularly dramatic, I'm going to remember it forever. How could I not? Right. That's the general view, but it's wrong. Uh, there, some famous studies done by folks at NYU after 9-11, uh, where they realized that, unfortunately, this was an opportunity to ask really good scientific questions about flashbulb memories, demonstrated that uh, the accuracy of people's memories for what for where they were and what happened, and they actually did this looking at people who were closer to the, the zone geographically, the accuracy of the memories was absolutely not increased by the, by the nature of the stress and the trauma and the importance of it. In fact, these so-called flashbulb memories, oh, I exactly remember where I was, are just as inaccurate as, as, as ordinary memories 
Unfortunately, that's not the way the public sort of views these things. They do tend to think they have good memories for these things, but they're no better than, than your average memory for what you did yesterday that was meaningless, so to speak. Why then do people feel like they're more accurate? And it seemed to even be able to at least generate more details. I mean, maybe they're not accurate details, uh, but what's That's, that's an important here? question about the accuracy of the details. I think people feel they're more accurate because of the strength of them, because they are retrieved and thought about in a very strong way. Brains, our cognitive systems, sort of interpret that strength of signal as accuracy rather than just as strength of signal. Gotcha. Well, let's take you back to step two. I didn't mean to jump ahead to yeah, the Yeah, I'm not even sure stage, where step but... two is anymore. So, so after you form this memory, you've registered stuff. The brain has decided which bits are worth keeping. It forms that memory. To that's the encoding stage. That's encoding stage. Then there's a period of time during which things are a little bit flexible in the, in the status of that memory. Uh, sleep is important here. It helps to consolidate the memory. So there's this period after you encode something when it's still a little bit fragile, when it could be sort of interrupted rel relatively easily. And over time, the memory gets hardened in a way. Kind of think a little bit like what happens, for those of you who remember what a photographic darkroom is like. It's kind of like you make an initial image and then it takes a little while for it to bake, you know, to actually get imprinted on the black and white. Right. That's, that's an that's, old That's reference. really hitting the 21st century yeah. podcast <laughs> wavelength there, Len. <laughs> um, and so there's this memory consolidation phase that, that firmly imprints the memory in, in your brain. It doesn't mean it's unchangeable because we're now learning that's not the case, but it means that by and large, it's pretty much fixed. Uh, and then later, you have the problem of having to get back to it. How do you, how do you retrieve a memory? We've all, we all know the experience of, oh, I can't remember this person's name, or I, I just can't remember that restaurant we ate in last week, or I, this fact about the world that I, you know, I was pretty sure I knew, I just can't retrieve. So retrieving, a, it's, it's not the case that memories automatically come to you when you want them. And it's an active process of trying to sort of dig into, your, into these so-called memory stores that you've got to find the memory that you want. So there's this sort of registering, encoding, consolidating, and then retrieving to get to the stage where, ah, oh, now I can tell you about what I did yesterday, or now I can tell you about what I did last week, or now I can go out there and, you know, play a really good game of tennis because all that training that trained my muscle memory, I can now demonstrate. And what determines the information that gets consolidated? Is it sort of another step of what was happening at the encoding stage, further filtering on It's a further filtering, and happening? again, it, it comes back to this issue of, of the brain possibly tagging the bits that are really important to keep. So the things that, you know, that get to the end stage of being fully consolidated are the ones that either fit very well with stuff you previously knew or are highly salient and were tagged as things you definitely want to store, new bits of information you want to store for the future. How does retrieval work? Uh, that's not an easy question to answer. I mean, the simplest way to answer that question is you, you think about you go to the library and you want to find a book. All right, again, I'm using a 20th century reference. You know, those of you who remember what libraries are like, uh, there would be like an index file, right? And you would go and you'd look up and you'd find the index that, and it would tell you where to go to find the book. The brain does something a little bit like that. There appears to be a portion of the brain that is basically storing the location of various prior experiences. It's like an index or a code to where the information is. And you retrieve memory partly by triggering those indexes. This is in the hippocampus. And we think the hippocampus is crucial to that, to that job. Yes, that's what most people think. 
But of course, the index itself has to be activated. So typically, you would retrieve a memory by by sticking in one cue. You know, like, oh, what exactly, exactly where did we eat the last time we were in San Francisco? That might trigger, you know, all of the memories I have of my trips to San Francisco. And then slowly, I would zero in on, okay, where are the restaurants that I ate in, and which part of San Francisco, and so on. And, and by, a, by a process of this iterative search, using cues to help you find your way, you can get back to what you want, typically, not always. And then the full-blown memory comes out. The system works in a way that a few bits of information can trigger the, the activation of the rest of it in, in a process that you know, the cognoscenti call pattern completion. You put in a little bit of information, and then that information completes the whole pattern. In this case, the pattern is the memory. How good are we at doing this? And maybe another way of asking that is how much information have we encoded, consolidated, but are never capable of retrieving again? Probably quite a bit. I think we're nowhere near as good at doing this as we think we are. We all think we've got good memories and we get quite annoyed when we have a failure of memory. I think the truth of the matter is that most people's memories are quite faulty and that we fill in a lot of information that we take to be the truth we don't really know. Uh, there's, again, a lot of experiments to show that that's the case. So I think we're, we convince ourselves that we are correct, but anyone who you know, shares a story with somebody about a, a trip or an experience they had together knows perfectly well that those two stories, even if you're quite close, if you haven't talked about it for a few weeks and you get back together and suddenly, oh, you remember when we did this? And they say, well, no, that's not quite the way it happened. I remember it slightly different than, uh, I think that shows us that, that our memories are not, they're not veridical at all. They're not really the truth exactly as it happened. They're our truth of how it happened. They have to be close enough to the truth, otherwise they wouldn't be very useful in the, in the real world. I mean, I, I pretty much have to have a pretty accurate idea, but they don't have to be exactly right. And, and quite frequently, a lot of the details are things that we just add in because it's, it's the obvious case. Uh, you know, that if it was a car in, in that accident, then, you know, then that car probably was a certain kind of car or a certain kind of truck, because those are the ones I see most often, you know, in situations like that. That doesn't mean it really was in this particular instance, that kind of car or that specific event. I think, again, what people don't, don't fully understand is that memories are not like a tape recording. Memories are not something that it's all there in one place. Memories are, uh, especially an episode memory, you know, it includes visual information, auditory, and so on, includes a variety of different kinds of information that's being plucked from various parts of the brain where that information is stored and then constructed into this memory. When we retrieve a memory, we're constructing it. We're not just plucking it out of a tape recording. We're actually putting it all back together again. Interestingly enough, if you think about the word remembering, unpack that word or recollecting, recollecting, right? So the, the actual words convey what is really going on. It's not retrieving, it's remembering in the ancient sense of the word to remember something, to put things back together again, to collect them again. So the brain stores memories in a very distributed way. Parts of it are here, parts of it are there. It's all over the place. And then you have this kind of central indexing function that knows where the bits and pieces are, and it pulls them out together. And that's how you get to a memory. But some of those pieces may really be true. Some of them may not. The color of the jacket that your friend wore is not probably what you remember it was. And, you know, the, de the, the unimportant details, you know, you're just making them up. Is this because you have to, because in the encoding and consolidation phase, you've just lost so many details that in order to 
that's so probably to true. The experience you've got to fill the gaps as best you can. That's probably true. That is that is almost certainly true. But there, I think there's something deeper going on here, and it's rather interesting. And again, maybe this is a reference that people can't easily relate to. Although who knows? During the Watergate hearings, when John Dean was uh, testifying before the congressional uh, hearings, uh, the, a lot of the senators and, and the congressmen on the on the panel complimented Dean on his incredible memory because he remembered lots of details about things that supposedly got said by President Nixon or other people in, in the Oval Office. And they said, you have such a great memory, and they, in fact, gave him a lot of credibility because of all these details he remembered. Unfortunately for John Dean and for that notion, the Watergate tapes emerged, and it became clear that actually his memory of the details was almost completely wrong on every count. But the gist of what he remembered was correct, right? So the thought here is that providing lots of details makes a person sound more credible. So it's possible that we add these details into the memories that we tell. If I tell you a story, if I say, well, let me tell you a story about what I did last week, and I sound sort of vague about the details, you may not trust my memory very much. If I tell you, oh, I was in this place, and there was this, and I'm very detailed about it, chances are you're going to you know, treat me with more as a more credible source because I've remembered these details. The fact that the details were made up, that, that's not part of your thinking. You just say, well, this person has a really good memory, right? So I think this sort of adding detail back in has an adaptive function. It makes us more credible to other people who listen to us. We're actually trying to do some research on this issue of detail and credibility. But when you think about how memory evolved, Part of what memory evolved for was, or, was within the oral tradition of people telling stories, passing on knowledge from one generation to the next. And the best folks for doing that were the ones who could provide as much detail as possible about you know, how you find you know, the best food at this time of year or how you navigate across open seas to get to another island. Details matter for things like that. So I think the system provides detail because it serves both a social function and a memory function. And to be clear here, to what extent are you suggesting the addition of those details is kind of a, a deliberate conscious strategy versus when you're retrieving it, the de- you believe the details Absolutely. The latter. The latter. It's nothing, there's nothing conscious going on here. I think this is the way the system works because over millions of years, it evolved to be this way for adaptive purposes. We, we don't stop and say, oh, I'm going to add in details so they'll think I'm telling the truth. We just do it. And I think we fool ourselves. That's what we remember. And that's our truth. And for the sort of the the modern day and Dean examples of this, you know, there's all these TV shows that bring out a lot of great humor, catching people on tape saying they did or didn't say something right. six months ago. And then they show the old archive and it's completely opposite. And everyone right. asks themselves, how could you possibly, right. don't you know right. it's on tape? Do you right. think they just genuinely believe? I think they, they genuinely believe. I mean, of course there must well, be examples right. of the other, but I think by and large people don't understand how fragile memory is. They really treat it. I mean, when I say people, the public, really assumes that, pe- that we all have good memories and that if someone makes a memory mistake of that sort, then they're evil in some way. Uh, it, that doesn't follow. From what we know of the science of memory, memory is quite fragile and quite changeable and quite easily distorted. And when we distort it, we then take that to be our memory. I mean, we don't think, well, I used to think this, but you know, now, it, now it's changed and, you know, and I don't know which is true, but I'm going to make believe I know. No, no. We assume consciously whatever it is that we've come up with, that's the truth of our prior experience, uh, even if it's pretty far from it. So I think we're going to stay in these same waters with this next question, but we've, we've registered an event, we've encoded it, we've consolidated it, we've now retrieved it, okay. it's done its business. Do we 
Put the book right back on the shelf, or what happens once you're done with using the memory? Well, here, here things really get interesting, because it turns out that the act of retrieval is not just a passive act. When we retrieve a memory, we kind of open it up to the possibility of being changed by what's happening to us right then and there at that moment. So in the famous uh, studies by Beth Loftus, the suggestibility studies, when people are asked a misleading question about a memory that they've been retrieved, that misleading information that then gets incorporated into the memory. It becomes the memory. So it looks like every time you reactivate a memory, for one reason or another, you open up the possibility of that memory being updated or being changed by some new information or some new event or some new understanding of the situation that you previously didn't grasp. So retrieval can have many consequences. In addition to just being able to spit back out a memory, it might also effectively open up the possibility of changing what you thought happened in the past. And this happens all the time. I mean, actually, there are many demonstrations of this, but people don't generally think about memory that way. They don't realize that that's the way it works. Can you give an example of a study of how we know this? Well, I can give you an example of this kind of an effect. So it's called the hindsight bias. Let's assume I ask you the following question. What's the population of France? And you give me an answer, whatever it is. And then a week later, I come back and I say, you know, a week ago, I asked you about the population of France, but now I'm going to actually tell you the answer. It's somewhere between 70 and 90 million. Given them the actual truth, you then say, can you remember, you know, what you guessed when you guessed a week ago? Most people will then adjust their guess so that it is closer to the number you actually just gave them rather than what they actually said. So this is called hindsight bias. They... So they think at this point, or they're biased to think that they had said something that was closer to this new piece of information that has now just been added to their memory. So that's a kind of an example of how that works. But there are many other examples of the same thing, where some new event sort of changes your understanding of what happened in the past. So if memory is not being successfully registered, encoded, consolidated, retrieved, put back on the shelf in a detailed, accurate way all the time, Does it change your thinking at all on what memory is for? It doesn't change my view of what memory is for, but it definitely changes my view of what memory is. In the most abstract sense, memory is for the things I said at the outset. It is to allow you to plan and behave adaptively in the future. That's the most important purpose of memory. That's the most important purpose of learning from experience so you can behave better in the future. That's going to remain true no matter how we think it works whether it's accurate or inaccurate, its purpose is still to do that. However, if it's inaccurate by and large, and if it's all kind of fuzzy in this way, and if we don't really retain accurate details and we really only retain the gist of it, then that tells us something different about how it works to accomplish this adaptive goal. And I guess that's where, to use your hindsight example, it makes a certain amount of sense because who cares what my initial estimate was if it was totally wrong and I later learned the right answer. Absolutely. No, no, exactly. I mean, that's the adaptive thing is to update your understanding of, you know, previously your guess was presumably based on some information you had, right? Clearly that was wrong. Now you get some new information and you update it. That's way more adaptive. Next time you get asked that question, you'll have the right answer. Yeah. So it's clearly adaptive to do that for memory to be malleable and changeable in this way. But this example, you know, brings us to a broader question about whether we should be talking about memories in quite the way we do. So if memories are not these ni- nice, neat little packaged things, like on a tape recorder, a little segment of a tape, but are rather something that we construct when we're asked to do so, 
you know, tell me what you did yesterday. Well, I don't just go in there, pull out a file and read from it. Maybe memory isn't quite what we thought it was. It's doing what we think it's doing, helping you adapt to the future. But the way it does it is different than we used to think. You know, the memory is a little bit evanescent. Well, that's going to change the way researchers approach the notion of memory and how to think about it. And we're moving away from a very static view of memory, kind of to go back to the old, you know, black and white negative image. You know, you make a static image. It's a fixed print. That's it. We're moving away from that notion of memory to a much more dynamic notion of memory where memories are kind of constantly changeable. Well, you might not want to use the word memory for that anymore because they're not accurate. I mean, they're changing all the time. So some of us in the field are beginning to think that we might want to move away from language that is not as sort of scientifically accurate and useful because it has such wide use in the public to something that would be a little more helpful in thinking about what the brain is really doing. What it's really doing is acquiring knowledge of all kinds, including knowledge about what happened to you. And then it is using that knowledge in the future, you know, to, to behave adaptively. I mean, that's in the broadest possible way of putting it. Uh, then we can talk about, instead of talking about memory systems, we talk about knowledge systems, you know, your knowledge of the facts of the world and your knowledge of whatever, your knowledge of baseball players and your knowledge of this and your knowledge of that. And you put all that together when you create a memory in some way or other. So at the onset, you referred to multiple different types of memory system. Is it different in any big ways for the other systems that are worth raising? That general story plays out in, in all of the different memory systems. And let me, let me say, so we can talk about motor memory. We can talk about emotional memory. We can talk about semantic memory. We can talk about habit memory. There's a lot of different kinds of memory. The basic sequence appears to be true, but the timing of those, of the stages would appear to be different according to the type of memory. Emotional memory, for example, can be consolidated very quickly because emotion produces a burst of hormones and other neurotransmitters that actually helps stamp in information quickly. Arousal does that. That's part of the salience effect. So, though, so that even if the stages appear to be the same, the timing of them may be different or the length of each stage may be different. You may need more consolidation for some kinds of memories than for others and so on. So you've been studying this, thinking about this for a while, I'll say. Are there aspects of your everyday life that you think about differently or maybe kind of structure your household or your affairs differently based on kind of insights or wisdom you have from this space? Yes and no. I, I would say the main takeaway for me in terms of how it affects my life is that I've, I really have stopped expecting people to be accurate in their memories. And I'm no longer upset when somebody misremembers something. I'm having a little harder time convincing people to not be upset with me if, I, if, they, if they think I misremember something. So my expectations of people's memories have changed. I have reasons not to worry so much if they are fuzzy in how they remember something. You know, it's okay. You're, you don't have Alzheimer's because you're, you can't remember what you did yesterday uh, and so on because it's normal. So I have a greater appreciation for the lack of precision of the system and for, and for the way, you know, the way we need to give allowances for the fact that memory is a, a functional tool. It's a tool that has some pluses and minuses and some clear shortcomings, shall we say, including this business that you can change it every time you, you think about it. Uh, and I take that into account in my interactions with other people. That's probably the only way that it's really changed my life. Are there ways to use the, the memory tool, so to speak, better to kind of control the conditions to increase the likelihood that we retrieve things accurately and with detail? 
There are many, many good questions here, and I'm afraid I'm not really expert on, on some of these issues. P uh, people like uh, Roddy Rodiger, you know, people have looked into what, what are the conditions that, that lead to better learning. I mean, there, there's, there's a burgeoning field of research on that that is beginning to make some progress. What we do know, if, if we can ask the question in a slightly different way. If we think about people who are really good memorizers, there's a, there's, there are some people who are what are called uh, um, superior autobiographical memorizers, and they're being studied in California. They're a small number, very rare. Some of them are quite well known. Mary Lou Henner, for example, is she, she's one of them. She's been studied by this group. So these people can rem remember stuff in incredible detail, and they're usually right. Turns out that these people have tricks. We call them tricks. Other people call them mnemonics, devices for remembering things better. It turns out even more interestingly that some of these mnemonic tricks, devices, were known to the ancients. They were described by the Greeks. They, they, they played a role in the Middle Ages. These were ways in which you could remember things more effectively, again, prior to writing and you know, all the other artificial devices we have now. A lot of these tricks depend upon using space as a, as a way of storing information. Again, you think about the metaphor of you know, the library where you store things in different places. One of the easiest things to remember, say, a list of words, it turns out, is if you imagine yourself in a very familiar environment, uh, say your house, and you imagine yourself walking around the house, and for each word, you associate that word with, with something like the couch. You make up some, you know, something that connects that word with the couch. And then you move on to the table. You associate the next word with the table. And you do that for the whole list. And then when you want to retrieve it, you just imagine yourself walking through the house. And the couch and that word comes up. And the table and that word comes up and so on. So this method of loci, it's called, very famous, is something that most people with superior memories use. So you could, in fact, improve your memory if you leverage this apparent linkage between memories and space and spatial locations. Now, one of the reasons that that turns out to be exciting is that this core part of the brain, the hippocampus, that we know is very important for episodic memory, is also extremely important for how we remember space and spatial locations and, and is the part of the brain that builds our maps of the world. Those things go together in the brain. So there's some deep relationship between, between thinking about the distribution of things in the world and our experiences in the world. And if you can leverage that and use those together, you can improve your memory. Now, that's not something everybody wants to do because it requires some training for how to do it. Otherwise, training, you know, repeating, rote learning doesn't work very well. But the point I made before about you learn better the things that integrate with stuff you already know, then that would be another way of enhancing your ability to learn and remember would be to try when you are acquiring new things to try to connect it to something you already know. Connecting it to a location in space is one thing. That's a little artificial. But you're connecting it to known spaces. But connect it to other stuff you know. Connect a new fact about France to what you already know about France. Or I already know that, that the Eiffel Tower is in Paris. All right, now I know that France has this. Connecting it to other things that you already know would be a way of, in, of increasing the likelihood that you're remembering it or going to remember it in the future. And is this a combination of just activating sort of more memories you already had that you can then consolidate into or just giving yourself more cues for when you go to retrieve it, I, some combination of the two? I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, everything suggests it's both. So this connection with space, which so much of your work is about, is a very deep and interesting one. You think this reflects the fact that 
just navigating the world was one of the first most important things we had to figure out from an evolutionary standpoint? I think that's almost, that is probably the case because the emergence of this part of the brain that links space and memory together came at a time in evolution when animals were first beginning to come up onto land and really move around extensively through spaces that they could actually move in. When you're, when you're a fish and you're in the water, you know, knowing exactly where you are is you know, maybe not that critical unless you're down on the ocean floor or you're in the coral reefs. But if you're in open water, you know, spatial location is not terribly helpful. Once you get up onto land, now there are trees, there are boulders, there's mountains, you know, there's all kinds of fixed features, basically, that you can use as an animal to get around in the world, to find food, to find safety, to find a mate, and so on. It's likely that over the course of evolution, it, it really became important, you know, to, to be able to link those things together. So method of loci, thinking about connections to other things are ways to sort of potentially use the, the memory tool better to yeah. press that analogy too far. Are there ways of kind of sharpening the tool? You know, you watch enough late night TV, you'll see ads for claims about improving your memory with these or those exercises. Again, I'm not an expert here, most, but my reading of it is that most of the claims that you can improve your memory in a, in a general sense don't hold up. Attempts to train a better working memory or to train a better memory for this kind or that kind have not borne fruit so far. doesn't mean that it won't be possible to find the magic bullet that, you know, if you just study it in just exactly this way, you'll get better at it. But by and large, most of the efforts to do that have not succeeded up to now. What about the prospect of our memories getting worse? I mean, as you move away from oral traditions, for example, and we lose some of the tricks of the method loci and other things— in some sense, we're at the extreme now, particularly navigation, right? right? We've got Google Maps. Hardly remember anything about the streets because we've got technology. We've got Wikipedia at our fingertips. With so much of these tools around us, do you think we're getting worse at using memory? Absolutely. And not only are we getting worse, it's, it's actually it's, it's more scary than that. Uh, my former student of mine, who I, you might even know, Veronique Bobot, who works in Montreal, she's been studying very closely the impact of using GPS on the brain itself. And she has provided some fairly compelling evidence that people who totally depend on those things, that the portions of the brain that would have been used if they hadn't been using those tools might actually show some shrinkage. This is, uh, it, it, this is not a positive scenario, in other words. It's probably not that good an idea to be completely dependent on our external tools. Our brains are like muscles. They need to be used. We do need to use the parts of the brain that are specialized for certain purposes. If we don't use them, they're just going to wither away. So I would caution parents and others, uh, it's not a good idea for people to be so completely dependent upon these devices that they're not actually using the tools that nature gave us. Use it or lose it, essentially. Another element that comes to mind here is just the sheer quantity of information that you can be exposed to online of all kinds of various claims, some of which must be wrong just because they contradict other ones. Right. And now I'm thinking back to that retrieval and reconsolidation phrases. We're, as we're getting exposed to all of this different information, how good are we at doing things like keeping track of what was right or wrong, whether we remember it, whether we heard it from a media outlet? How do you think, kind of make sense of this space? I think, unfortunately, we're not very good at it. And that partially accounts for kind of where we're at right now in society. I, I mean, I think the way the memory tool works, it is very much susceptible to the kinds of distortions and manipulations of, and, you know, just pile, if you just pile on enough false instances sooner or later, your brain is going to think that's the truth. 
uh, in some way, or it's going to sort of give that more credit than you think. In, in some ways, the brain is this massive statistical averaging device. It basically creates memories as a function of things that happen to us. And things that happen to us over and over again make stronger memories. I mean, what is unique about episodic memory is that it's a one-time event. And the whole way in which we store a memory for a single event that only happened once is rather different than the way in which we store, say, our memory for what an apple tastes like. Our memory for what an apple tastes like is a function of all the apples we've ever eaten that we sort of statistically average, or our brain does, to come up with, you know, roughly speaking, this is the range of what apples can taste like. So the brain is this massive statistical averager, basically pulling from our experience the regularities of, our, of what happens to us. And those regularities are the best predictors of what's going to happen in the future. So it, it makes sense for the brain to be doing that kind of thing. But since that's what it's doing, if experiences you're feeding it are not true, they're going to nonetheless affect you know, your statistical average. And sooner or later, they could swamp what is the truth. So I think we're in a dangerous zone. Given the way our brains work, we're in a dangerous zone when truth and falsehood and, and so on are so evanescent in, in, in the culture. Uh, it, it's, not a good, it's not a good thing. And what's particularly troubling about this, if I'm hearing this all right, is that even if you're tagging something as false at the moment, later when you retrieve it the first time or some tenth time later, you might lose you that might lose that tag. tag right exactly the system may not be able to, to distinguish those things it's repetition eventually can wear that down do you see some way out of this i mean this cuts in right with lots of the debate right now around fake news and people trying to curate accurate versus inaccurate remedia reports is there a way forward to your mind or a direction you would go in uh i'm afraid that you're, you're way above my pay scale now the first step would be for people to be aware of the things we're talking about, to be aware of the um, slipperiness of memory, to be aware of how easily it can be distorted, to be aware of the statistical averaging such that a steady drumbeat of something that is not true can eventually you know, wear down your brain's resistance and, and, and become your truth. I think we need to be aware of that. Being aware of that and taking that on board and understanding that that's the way things are might then lead to certain policy, at least an attempt to, to help the society define, these are the true things we know. We need records. I mean, this is why you know, historical record becomes absolutely critical. I mean, documentation, you know, what really did happen. Now, of course, in the modern age, when we can doctor with Photoshop just about any video or you know, when we can change the, some of those records, that becomes an issue as well. So it, it seems to me from a policy perspective, we have to then take on board the fact that maintaining the accuracy of, of the records becomes critical because we know our brains are not going to be able to do it. Let's put one more example on the table here of how memory research has already had a big influence on public policy and you actually edited a volume with Walter Sinod Armstrong on this on memory and the law. And in your book, you actually talk about a number of different spaces, but maybe to, to take the issue that everyone's most likely to see on law and order and other places – Eyewitness identification. Centralist is the accuracy of memory. Did we actually see an event or a person? How do you apply the issues we've been talking to about so far to a space like that? Again, I would say the first application would be to say, well, hold on a second. Eyewitness testimony has its, you know, we need to be careful, right? It, it isn't a given that somebody's eyewitness memory is accurate, right? And we also know that when we elicit eyewitness testimony, that it can be elicited in different ways. 
And some of those ways lead to more accurate renditions than other ways. Again, I think it's more a question of awareness. Uh, we all know now that eyewitness testimony can be faulty. There's no question about that anymore. But it also can be accurate. And there are ways in which we can sort of tilt the balance towards more accurate eyewitness testimony, again, depending upon the, the way we do lineups, the way we, the way we ask the question about do you remember what happened, and so on. Because all of those things are open to suggestibility and to, being, and to pushing the system. Uh, we have to find the way to access the system that is the least biased in, in how it elicits the information that is inside a person so that we're not actually changing what they're telling us even as they're telling it to us. But I, I don't think the basic research on what is exactly the best way to do that has been finished, so to speak, but I think we have made progress in understanding what works best for lineups, sequential versus simultaneous present. A lot of research agendas have been focused on, on trying to answer quite practical questions about how to get more accurate eyewitness testimony. I think there, there's been progress. Well, let's test your memory from a couple of years ago. Do you remember any more details about maybe one or two examples from how to make the lineup work better? So there's those moments where photos are in front of a person asking whether they saw the person or not. I'm not the best person to talk about this, and whatever I say is probably going to be wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's a famous story in the history of psychology about the, the horse that could add, Hans, the clever horse. This is a like 19th century story. And the, the, the owner of this horse was absolutely certain that if he asked the horse, you know, what's the sum of three and five, the horse would give him back eight. Of course, the owner would have to call out numbers, and then the horse would indicate when the number was correct. Well, some experts were brought in from around the world to, to figure this out. And they figured out that the owner of the horse inadvertently was giving very subtle clues to the horse as to which was the correct answer. And the horse would then respond appropriately. So that's kind of an early example <laughs> of exactly the same thing, which is that in a given situation, uh, the, the, the officer can unknowingly provide information that tilts the playing field, that biases the response. And that happens all the time. So yes, you've got to remove those biases and influences or potential biases, you have to remove those from the equation. Yeah. And that's a very straightforward, basic one. Just have an officer administer the lineup who doesn't Who has no knowledge, exactly. Right. And this is classic experimental design. I mean, you design studies in a way that the people who are doing the experiment are unaware, say, of which group some of the subjects are in, whether they've been treated this way or that way. You have to have a, what is called blind experimenters, not literally, but <laughs> experimentally blind experimenters so that they can't unconsciously bias. We know we have vast unconscious biases as well, just in general. So it's very, what you say is very important. Yeah. There's one other example I want to pull out there, partly just because it drives me a little nuts. It's when an error, some sort of mistake is made in the courtroom. Evidence is introduced that shouldn't be. And jurors will get an instruction to Unknow ignore <laughs> what you just saw. Forget what you just saw. Right. What do we know about, does this work? Does it backfire? Neutral? Well, we know from a variety of experiments that if you give people stuff and you tell them, well, forget about that, you know, that by and large, if you ask them later do you, you know, to remember the whole event, that they'll give you less of the stuff that you told them to forget. But does that mean you've actually forgotten it? Almost certainly not. You can't unsay something, basically. You can't wipe it completely from a person's brain. So a jury that's heard stuff that the, that the judge then says, you know, forget that you heard that or make believe you didn't hear that, that's kind of hard. Given what we know about when your new experiences get integrated with old experiences, having heard that whatever it was, that piece of evidence or whatever that you're supposed to ignore, your brain has already integrated that piece of information at some level into some of your calculations about what's going on in this trial. 
and you can't neatly excise that little bit as if you know it didn't happen. Um, you're going to now have to consciously try to ignore it. Looking forward, what is the research on the horizon you think is either underway that you're most excited about or maybe isn't being done but should be done? Uh, I would say that some of the things I'm most excited about are, are the issues around the role of sleep in memory because we know that sleep disorders are so prevalent in society. Virtually every, every disorder you look at, all the way, starting all the way from developmental disorders like, like Down syndrome or autism all the way to Alzheimer's and everything in between, sleep disorders are a very common part of, of health problems. And if sleep is a critical component in memory or in, in kind of consolidating memories and in selecting which memories to keep, then people with sleep disorders are also going to have memory problems. And there hasn't been enough focus on that. We've shown that to be the case for, for kids with Down syndrome, but it, and we think it's also been clearly shown for folks with Alzheimer's. But there's a lot of work to be done on the relationship between sleep and disordered sleep and cognitive function in general, but also memory in particular. So that's number one. The other now, thing that comes to mind here is as people use more technologies and have phones by the bed, just the number of hours people are sleeping seems to be going and down exactly in general. Right. And right, that's another issue. Another exciting area for me right now that I'm sort of involved in is we do say that you can't just expunge memories, but you know, maybe if you get in there and, and do things in a more biological way, maybe you could, right? So maybe there would be ways you could selectively erase memories if you could figure out how to very selectively uh, activate them. So we're, we're progressing in, in trying to understand the cellular mechanisms around forgetting and not forgetting, and we may be able to manipulate that in, in ways that could be useful. We're also progressing in, in figuring out what is going on, say, in psychotherapy. Take a situation where you want to change a person's memory. People are struggling under depression or you know, anxiety attacks because of certain memories that they just can't get rid of. Uh, is there a way that we could get in there and selectively activate and then while they're active, change, you know, memories that really are playing a rather negative role in that person's life. There's a lot of work on that right now. And there's excitement about that possibility, although we haven't figured out quite how to do it. In my lab, we've been doing some experiments like that and trying to activate during sleep particular memories and then change them. We've had a little bit of success at that. So there's a movement now, and I'm you know, one of the people involved in it, in the psychotherapy world to try to figure out exactly what is going on in the brain when, when psychotherapy works. What's going on? How do you actually change people's behavior in a way that that change lasts? Because that's always the problem in therapy. And we're trying to apply some of these ideas about memory and changing memories once they're activated to that sort of a notion. Uh, it's early days, but there's a kind of increasing excitement in the therapeutic world about this, uh, this approach where we're sort of bringing neuroscience into the clinic. Well, we could do it for another hour. Linda Dell, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. It's very interesting. Thank you, David. The podcast at DC is brought to you by the Lab at DC an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.